0: This morning we'll be looking at verses 1 through 8. As you turn there, let me correct an oversight uh, that I made last Lord's Day morning, uh, and that is on behalf of myself and Pastor Brian. Let me express our profound gratitude for your generous pastor's appreciation gift. We are very honored and grateful for your kindness to us. Thank you so much for Uh, blessing us like that. Both Pastor Brian and I are truly grateful to serve here with you at New Covenant. Uh, So, uh, Revelation chapter 1, 21, rather. uh, If you would look with me at verses 1 through 8 of this chapter, I'll read our passage uh, before we begin this morning. Hear the word of God. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, which is the second death. This is God's authoritative and inerrant word. May he bless what we've just read. Let's ask for his help briefly as we look in uh, to these words today. Father, uh, quicken us with your good spirit. Open our eyes and our hearts and our minds to hear your truth. I pray that you would unite our hearts to fear your name. Uh, Jesus I pray that you'd press the truth into our hearts that we would put it into practice feed us and change us and transform us as we see uh, what awaits us in the new heaven and new earth Uh, strengthen us now we pray through Christ Amen. amen an author from Mississippi shares this account and he writes, in the late 1920s, my grandparents married and moved into grandpa's old family home. It was a clapboard house with a hall down the middle. In the 1930s, they decided to tear down the old house and build another to be their home for the rest of their lives. Much to my grandmother's dismay, many of the materials of the old house were reused in the new house. They used old facings and doors and many other pieces of the finishing lumber. Everywhere my grandmother looked, she saw that old house. Old doors that wouldn't shut properly, crown molding split and riddled with nail holes, unfinished window trimming. It was a source of grief to her. All her life she longed for a new house. Now, this is not the kind of thing that God had in mind when in verse 5, He says, Behold, I am making all things new. It's not this kind of thing He has in mind. In fact, just a moment ago in our scripture reading, we read this in Isaiah 65, 17, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, And the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. That's an entirely different thing that God will be doing when he says, Behold, I make all things new. So what does he mean by that phrase? What will this new heaven and earth be like? And why won't the former things be remembered or come to mind? What are the all things new like? The new heavens and the new earth are described in the verses before us today. It's really the first time in Revelation that John moves beyond the final battle. We saw the final battle described six times. It's really the first time John moves beyond the final judgment. We saw that described several times. And he moves beyond the battle and the final judgment to describe for us today what believers will enjoy in eternity, this new heavens and new earth. And there are six features of the new heavens and earth that John describes. Six features that I want to point out to you uh, today from the Word. Uh, The first feature that we see is a new creation. Uh, Because the first heaven and earth were dissolved, God creates a new heaven and a new earth. Let me point out three things uh, to you here. First, we hear... uh, the description of this new heaven and new earth in verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Again, we read this uh, in our scripture reading just a moment ago, Isaiah 65, 17, for, as, uh, for behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered. In the very next chapter, uh, Isaiah, uh, the Lord says through Isaiah, for as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring in your, your name remain. But we should understand this word new here in verse 1 as a new kind of earth, not just another earth. For example, if you told me you had a new mode of transportation to get to work, And it was parked out in the parking lot. And I were to walk out and you would show me a a new car. Well, it'd be new, newer, but it'd still be a car, not really new. But if you were to walk out in the parking lot and show me a helicopter, that would be new, 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 Uh, different. That's what this word means. Something unknown, something strange, remarkable, unprecedented, uncommon, unheard of. Uh, Your ESV study Bible says new is best understood here in terms of something that has been qualitatively transformed in a fundamental way. By comparison to the old order that's coming to an end, the new cosmic order is radically different. A place where righteousness will dwell. A Bible scholar named William Hendrickson comments that the very foundations of the earth have been subjected to the purifying fire. We read about that in 2 Peter chapter 3 last week. Every stain of sin, every scar of wrong, every trace of death has been removed out of the great conflagration, that means fire. Fire but it just sounds a lot better than fire. (laughs) Out of the great conflagration, a new universe has been born. Well, why did God create a new heaven and a new earth? This leads us uh, to the second thing uh, to see there in verse 1. The second thing we see about this new creation is what happened to the old creation, the the old heaven and earth, the first heaven and earth. Verse 1 goes on to say, For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Passed away simply means to go away, to depart. John uses this in the book of John to describe how some of Jesus' disciples had left him. They went away, they departed. Uh, God created a new heaven and a new earth because the first heaven and the first earth had departed. 2 Peter 3 says that the first heaven and first earth had dissolved. It says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved. That Greek word means to destroy, bring to an end, to do away with. In Luke chapter 12 that you might be familiar with, 21 rather, I'm really dyslexic with my numbers today. I don't know what's going on. Uh, Luke 21 says, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. We're familiar with those words, and in particular the last half of that, but it's the first half of that that we should stop. And when we hear Jesus say, Heaven and earth will pass away. And then you're probably familiar with these words from Psalm 102. They're quoted in the book of Hebrews. Listen to this. It says, Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away, but you are the same and your years. Have no end. So, kind of summing it up the macarthur study bible has a comment here the entire universe as we now know it will be destroyed and be replaced by a new creation that will last forever this is an old testament reality as well as a new testament reality so we see secondly what what has happened to the old creation the old heaven and earth that's why Uh, There is a new heaven and earth. There's one more thing I want you to see about this new creation and that is the description of the sea that comes at the very end of verse 1. It simply says, the, the last phrase, and the sea was no more. Why is there no more sea in the new creation? It's because throughout the Bible the sea was believed to be the place where evil came from. Uh, The sea was a symbol of the realm which chaos and rebellion rose from. Uh, One man says, at present The sea is the emblem of unrest and conflict, the roaring, raging, agitated, tempest-tossed waters, the waves perpetually enraged in combat with one another symbolize the nations of the world and their conflict and unrest. For example, Isaiah 57, "'But the wicked are like the tossing sea, "'for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt.'" And then in Daniel chapter 7, you read about these four nations described as four beasts. And Daniel says, and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. Back in chapter 13, we read that the beast rose from the sea. So this is why there's no more sea in the new creation. It was viewed in the Bible, throughout the Bible. You read about the waters lifting up their voices, Uh, The nations and and, uh, those in rebellion against Christ and and his kingdom uh, rise up in rebellion. The waters lift their voices. Things like that we see again and again. That's why there's no sea. That's not to say there are no bodies of water in the new heavens and new earth. Only that the sea as we now know it will not be present. So this is, to begin with, the first Uh, feature of the new heavens and and earth Uh, that is uh, we see it's a new creation Uh, and we've seen three things we we hear the new heaven and earth announced we read that the old heaven and earth passed away and that there will be no more sea There's a second feature I want us to go on and see, and we see this in verse 2, and that's a new Jerusalem. John sees this city coming down from heaven. Verse 2 says, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Uh, Technically speaking, New Jerusalem is already in existence. Paul refers to it in Galatians chapter 4. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother, Galatians 4. Uh, the writer to Hebrews describes it in Hebrews 12. But you've come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, into innumerable angels and festal gathering. This heavenly city is called New Jerusalem here to distinguish it from the earthly city of Jerusalem located in Palestine. So uh, this city already exists in heaven, the heavenly Jerusalem, this new Jerusalem. But further, John describes this uh, new Jerusalem as the bride of Christ. Look at the end of verse 2 where he says, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And and again, glance a little further down to verse 9 in your Bible and It says there, then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. John goes on to describe the city and in spectacular language lord willing we'll look at that next uh sunday morning but going back to verse two uh john sees this glorious city descend from heaven above to earth below it, it seems though as as though heaven descends to earth heaven heaven itself descends to earth uh, one scholar comments it's that it's almost as if there's no longer a difference between heaven and earth. The next feature uh, seems to stress this as well, because next we see uh, not only a new Jerusalem, but there's a new communion. There's a, a new level of communion with God in the new heaven and new earth. And it's a result of Jerusalem descending from above, God's dwelling or God's tabernacle, is now with man. Look at verse 3 in your, in your Bible. And, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. That's the fulfillment of the Emmanuel theme that runs through Scripture that we are so fond of introducing around Christmas time from Isaiah chapter 7 and uh, those passages around there. Uh, Back in the book of Leviticus, God promised Israel that if they obeyed his commands, he would make his dwelling among them. He said to them in the book of Leviticus, I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you, and I will walk among you, and will be your God, and you shall be my people. This was through the Mosaic law, the the earthly tabernacle, the system of sacrifices. Unfortunately, we know how all of that turned out. And So God had to repeat the promise, uh, made the same promise as part of the new covenant. That was the old covenant in Leviticus, but he... He repeats it in the New Covenant, in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 37, my dwelling place shall be with them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. But here in the new heaven and the new earth, we will enjoy the complete fulfillment of this promise and enjoy a whole new level of communion with God. Look at the rest of verse 3. Look at how it concludes. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Listen to this word, the the intimacy with God that made Eden truly paradise, the garden of God was lost through human sin. The tabernacle of God in the midst of Israel's wilderness picked up themes from that lost home. Yet both tabernacle and temple in the Old Testament times were faint previews of the eventual, eternal dwelling of God among his people. God's presence marks the consummation of an intimate covenant commitment often expressed in the Old Testament in words such as, my dwelling place will also also will be with them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people, which are echoed here for us in verse 3. I confess I I have no illustration for this point. I can't think of an illustration uh, that would do justice to this point. How can we possibly comprehend what John is presenting to us uh, in verse 3? He will dwell with them. And they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. That is and will be something completely different. That's a helicopter. Going back to my previous illustration. Unbroken communion with God. A walking with Him. It's. Uh, I can't explain it no further. That's the third feature of the new heaven and earth. And what a glorious feature it is. A, a, a just completely different kind of communion with God. No more distance in our relationship. No more feelings like He's left you or that He's left you alone in your trials. He will be with you. We will dwell with him and we will be his people. Well, there's a fourth feature that we see in our passage today in verse 4. And the fourth feature is a new order. Uh, The difficulties of this life will be replaced by a completely new way of doing things. And verse 4 describes this And he, uh, excuse me, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. John's alluding again to Isaiah 25, which uh, says this, he will swallow up death forever and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. Sometimes, Uh, This life uh, upon earth is described as a veil of tears or a, a, a valley of weeping. And consider the countless number of tears that have been shed since man fell into sin in Genesis chapter 3. You too, you too have shed tears at the anguish and sorrow that life here on earth has brought you. But John says he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Like the way this uh, scholar explains it, he says, like a mother who bends down and tenderly wipes away the tears from the eyes of her weeping child. So the Lord God stoops down to dry the tear-filled eyes of his children Here is a telling portrait of God's tender mercies extended to the suffering members of his household. He goes on to say why there will be no more crying. Uh, As verse 4 continues, it says, And death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more. There will be no more crying or pain because death, the last enemy, will have been abolished. Death was the curse of the old covenant, but that old way of doing things, the old order has passed away, as verse 4 goes on to say, for the former things have passed away. The old order that always included death, sorrow, mourning, and tears, has been replaced by a completely new order. Verse 5 uh, talks about the, the immense renovation God is making. And he says in verse 5, And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. God's redemptive plan in Christ has not only renewed believers, it has also renewed all of creation and Death and the curse will be no more. There will be no sorrow. Some of us can't imagine what it's like to wake up in the morning without sorrow. And the mourning you have felt for loved ones departed. All of that is passed away because the Lord is making all things new. Paul describes this immense renovation in Romans chapter 8. And I know you know these words. Let me remind you and refresh your memory of what Paul writes In Romans 8.18, he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation, the creation under the curse, waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Creation groaning in the pains of childbirth and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Don't we groan? Don't we, don't we feel the pain of sin's curse? And, and don't we cry, Lord, how long? Lord, come, lift this curse. There was a London businessman, his name was Lindsay Clegg, uh, who was selling a, a rather large, dilapidated warehouse. The building had been empty for months, needed repairs. Vandals had damaged the doors, broken the windows. There was trash all over the inside of his warehouse. But he had a prospective buyer, and he was showing him the property, and Clegg apologetically took pains to say that he'd fix the windows, he'd bring in a crew to fix the structural damage, he'd take care of this garbage, and the buyer said to him, forget about the repairs. I don't care about repairs when I buy this I'm going to bulldoze it and build something completely different. I don't want the building. I just want the site. And that's along the lines of of what God means when he says in verse uh, 5, Behold, I am making all things new. I'm going to bulldoze it all. I'm going to create something that is out of this world. I am making all things new. Helicopter new. Different. And all the old stuff will receive the wrecking ball. This is the fourth feature of the new heaven and earth. There will be a new order and and we can hardly imagine uh, what this will be like. There's a fifth thing I want you to see here, uh, and the fifth thing is a new confidence. Uh, the certainty of this gives new confidence to believers in this age, uh, and it comes from three statements out of our passage. Uh, the first statement of confidence is uh, it comes in uh, toward the end. Of verse 5 these words are trustworthy and true uh, verse 5 toward the end of the middle of verse 5 says also he said write this down for these words are trustworthy and true this comes from the very throne of God God himself attests to John the truthfulness that all things will be made new this is not John's Wishful thinking, nor is this a, a man's imagination of, of some distant utopia. What John is seeing in this apocalyptic vision is the very truth of God. The fulfillment of this vision rides on the truthfulness of his character. Should this fail to occur, God would no longer be truthful. God would no longer be God. This is certain to happen based on the utter truthfulness of who God is. Write it down, John. These words are trustworthy and true. You can believe it. This great goodness will happen. You will wake up in glory one day and be free from pain. Based on the other truthfulness of the character of God. His holiness will see it through. It's certain. So certain that God can make the next statement in verse 6. And He said to me, It is done. This is the perfect tense. I know you're thrilled about that. The perfect tense refers to action completed in the past with results that are continuing in the present. More literally, it could say, these things have been done. These things have come to pass, even have already come to pass. They're so certain in the mind of God that he can say these things are have already been fulfilled. They're so certain to happen that it's, though they've already taken place, it is impossible for God's plan of redemption to fail. So he says, it is done. And then he makes a third statement of confidence. Not only these words are faithful and true, It is done. But next he says, I am the Alpha and Omega there in verse 6. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Perhaps you'll recognize these as the first and last letter of the Greek alphabet. This is a reminder all the way from chapter 1 where the Lord uh, told John, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God who is and who was, And who is to come, the Almighty. God is reminding John again here in chapter 21 of his lordship over all history. He's the Alpha, he is at the very beginning, he is the creator of all things. And he is the Omega. He is at the very end bringing all things to their, their appropriate conclusion. He's the creator and the consummator of all history, standing behind all that takes place in directing events to their intended conclusion. I've got to exhort some of you here this morning that you do not hold this high a view of God, but that is always how the Bible presents him. He is the initiator and the consummator of all history. He creates things, sets them in motion. He brings them to their intended uh, conclusion uh, according to His purpose. Alpha and Omega. Can you imagine what the churches would feel reading these three phrases, these statements of confidence, Uh, the seven churches back in chapters 2 and 3? What resolve these statements would give them, and what steadied nerve these statements would would well up in their souls. As John says, it's as good as done. What steady nerve should well up in our souls this morning? What steady nerve should well up in us today? The end is as good as done. He will keep you And some of us have been far too afraid. Far too afraid. The Lord of History will bring things to their climax. He will bring this about. If you're Christ's, He will see you through. It's as good as done. He is the Alpha and the Omega. Think of the verse from uh, Philippians 1.6. Being confident of this, that He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. If you are Christ's, you will get there. To this place of a new heaven and a new earth. And largely because of who is behind it, and who makes these statements that well up confidence within us? And so one man writes, In battled churches of the first and 21st centuries, whether intimidated by oppression or beguiled by society's seduction, need to realize that this promise of God Is more certain than all that their eyes can see. Than all that their eyes can see. The fifth feature of this new heaven and earth is new confidence, the certainty of it. uh, The certainty of this new creation gives confidence to believers in this age and this age. There's one more feature I want you to see, and that is the new promises uh, that God gives. It might be better to say renewed promises. Uh, He restates his promises about who will participate in this new creation. And the first promise that he makes here is to unbelievers. Um, We see this promise uh, towards the middle of verse 6. Look at what it says, To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Uh, to the third, a thirsty God offers the water of life, in other words, eternal life. Uh, This is the same promise Jesus made to the woman at the well with similar words. In in John chapter 4, Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. Uh, The water... Uh, that I will give him, will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Isaiah 55, the same kind of promise. Come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. And so to those desperately empty souls, Uh, to those who have attempted to quench their spiritual thirst from the the empty reservoirs of this world, Jesus Christ invites you to come and drink from Him today. To to turn your back on the broken fountains you've been drinking from, to, to stop drinking the polluted groundwater of the world and turn to Christ and his stream of living water, and he says, I will quench your thirst. He makes this promise to unbelievers. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to me and drink. The second promise he makes is to believers. Uh, To believers, God holds out the enjoyment of the new heavens and new earth and personal communion with Him. Look at verse 7 in your copy of the word. The one who conquers will have this heritage. Uh, The one who conquers reminds us of what He said to the seven churches earlier that repeated promise at the end of each of those letters to Him who conquers to believers who persevere to the end. Christ says the one who conquers will have this heritage. They will inherit this. And, and that could either point ahead to the next phrase or it could point backwards to the previous six verses. It's, it's similar either direction you go. They will inherit all that I've been describing. The faithful followers of Christ will inherit the the blessings of the new heaven and new earth. And in particular, the promise of this communion uh, with God as he goes on to say, And I will be his God, and he will be my son. And there for the first time, I can't even dream of what this will be like. Who can Having struggled in sin all these years on this planet. And then standing face to face with your Heavenly Father. And I will be His, His God. And He will be my Son. can you think of a better reason to keep going? Look, some of you are tired. I know it. I can see it. And I can hear it. You're exhausted with this fight. And I hope you take verse 7 and make it yours this morning. Look at what it says. The one who conquers, the one who puts one foot in front of the other and keeps on going, will have this heritage and I will be his or her God and he or she will be my son or my daughter. Friend, keep going. Don't stop. Don't give up. Because God holds this out to you this morning. I will be his God. He will be my son. Forever in fellowship with your Heavenly Father. The second promise is made to believers. And lastly, the third promise, if you want to call it a promise, is made to professors. To those who profess to know Christ, but really don't. To those insincere and hypocritical professors, God promises the lake of fire. And we see this in verse 8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable... As for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. You see, God sees through you. Um, Some think this is addressed towards unbelievers like the first promise, but John has already made it abundantly clear that those who follow the beast and bear his mark will inherit the lake of fire. The other opinion is that this is addressed to traitors in the church, to hypocrites in the church, to professors in the church. And there's maybe some of you here, you know, here you are, it's Sunday morning, and you're at church, and you think nobody knows but God knows what's in your heart. And you profess to know Christ, but you've never trusted in His atoning death for the forgiveness of your sins. And there are these things that are in your life. It says they are cowardly. They refuse the hardship that comes from confessing the name of Jesus. And instead, they flee from danger and they refuse to identify with Christ. It says they're faithless. They've been unfaithful to God and His commands. It says they're detestable. They've been polluted by the world. And only you know how polluted you've become on the inside. They're murderers. They're sexually immoral, and and sexual immorality is just as widespread in our day as it was in John's. They're sorcerers, which uh, is probably a reference to drug users. The word is pharmakeia, from where we get pharmacy. It could be casting spells with the use of drugs. It could be drug use. Says they're idolaters. They put things in place of Christ, and they're liars. And so I don't know if anybody here is like this, but I just want to say: you think you're fooling everyone. You're not fooling the one who knows the inside of you, and he's writing this to you. I, I'm. I don't want to look up because I'm not thinking of anyone in particular, but. I just want you to hear, God knows. This last is made to professors. And there's a lot of professors inside the church across America. And their inheritance will not be the new heaven and the new earth. And all things will not be new to them. These professors, like those who openly follow the beast, are marked by him, if not visibly, at least on the inside. And their portion, like those, will be the lake of fire. The sixth feature is... New promises, or restated promises, if you prefer, of the new heaven and the new earth. God restates his promises about who will inherit the new heaven and the new earth. And so, what's it mean when God says, Behold, I'm making all things new? Up in verse 5. What will this new heaven and new earth be like? And, and why won't the former things be remembered or come to mind? Can you imagine that, that many of the things we so enjoy here, we won't even think about? Because of all that the new heaven and new earth consists of. And John describes these six features of the new heaven and new earth for us this morning. There's a a new creation. Uh, uh, The the new heaven and new earth itself and and the old heaven and earth passing away. There's, There's a new city. We'll look at this more next Sunday. Descending from heaven described as Christ's bride. There's this new communion God dwelling with us there's a totally new order of doing things no mourning no death and we have this new confidence because of the certainty of this based on these three statements from our passage and finally there are new promises made about who inherits this new heaven and earth So, as we close today, I feel compelled to to, um, say, as I have so often said, My dear friend, are you a professor? Or have you come to faith? In the atoning death of Jesus, have you trusted him for the payment of your sins? The Bible says all of us have sinned and fallen short of God's perfect standard of righteousness. And we stand alienated from him. Actually, we're described as his enemies. We will not stand before him on the final day. We will not endure. It's only by turning away from uh, your catechism class or your church membership or your baptism as an infant or adult or your good works or your teaching Sunday school or anything you've put your hope in other than the death of Christ on the cross is turning away from your open rebellion. You can be a, a good-looking sinner or you can be a bad-looking sinner. You can look squeaky clean or you can smell foul. Either one. God's Word calls you to turn away from it and turn to the cross and Christ substitution, that he took your place and paid your penalty so that your sin could be forgiven and so that you could walk in newness of life. If you're still here, you're a professor. But if you're here, you're a possessor. So use your word today, Lord Jesus, to accomplish your good purpose. And any professors here, I pray that you would bring them to see their need for a Savior and your atoning death, Jesus, in their place, and that they would come to put their reliance and trust and faith in you. And Father, for those of us who have trusted in Jesus, your Son, and walk through this veil of tears, I pray that you would lift our eyes and point us to the future that's held in these precious eight verses where you make all things new. And I pray you would renew them in your grace that you would grant them your persevering grace to endure uh, the trials you've allowed in their lives. Strengthen them with your Holy Spirit this morning. May these verses be a genuine encouragement to them. Remind them that you, they are even now your precious sons and daughters. and May they look forward to the day where they will see you in person. And we will be your sons and daughters. Work this in us, Savior. We ask in your name, Amen. As we conclude today, we want to pause and observe the Lord's Supper. Uh, before we leave, we're still observing our COVID protocol in the method, in manner in which we take the Lord's Supper, and if. You have not picked up the elements of the Lord's Supper. There are some in the back and some right here in front of me. Uh, If you would um, hop up and grab uh, one for yourself and um, whatever members of your household uh, need it uh, as we observe the Lord's Supper today. By way of reminder, uh, we don't require you to be a member of New Covenant Bible Church to take the elements of the Lord's Supper. Um, But God requires that you be a member of his body, his family.